We come to the conclusion of this series in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. We've come to verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. Father, we thank you for the anchor of which we've sung. We thank you for the new life in Christ of which we've sung, and are grateful that we have in you a anchor of the soul, that there is strength in our relationship with you. And we pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior among us, we pray that you draw them to saving faith. And we pray for those who are coming here today as your people, and perhaps with burdens and sorrows and suffering and difficulty, perhaps with great joy of heart. Whatever the case, I pray that we would heed the Word of God, that you'd help us by your Spirit to concentrate and to learn And we ask that the Spirit of God would teach us the meaning of this book and particularly this passage. And may it apply to our lives as a church. May we actively apply it and strive to honor you as we respond to the Word. May we realize that as we're gathered here, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we ask now that the Spirit would open our eyes to see this truth. And again, that you draw to saving faith in Christ, those who do not know him, that you'd open their eyes to the truth that you've shown us. May we seek your truth as we hear it from your mouth. Through Christ we pray, amen. Two forces conspire against the spiritual health of this church. There are many, but there are particularly two I'd like to focus on today. The first is the assault that comes from a decadent, immoral culture in which we live every day of our lives. The second assault comes from evil ideas, whether straight-up false doctrine or foolish ideas that capture our interests but do nothing to purify our lives. The godless lifestyle that epitomizes our culture And the false ideas that cloud the air like spiritual smog work in tandem against us in at least three ways. The first is to weaken our spiritual vitality. The second is to divide us from one another as these false ideas are described 
We can take sides and begin to pull apart. And thirdly, to distract us from the mission that Christ gave to us. As we fall into the sensuality of our culture, as we are under the influence of false ideas, we can be distracted from the calling of our lives. Now this assault is real, it is unrelenting, and it is dangerous. And every member of Eden Baptist Church must respond to this threat upon our faith and upon the health of our assembly by working in exactly the opposite direction. First, to strengthen our spiritual health. And second, to unite around God's Word in unity. And thirdly, to remain on mission in gospel enterprise. I bring these three ideas up because of the text that we come to today, but they are an exercise for us, a discipline for us as a church as we strive to be a healthy body of Christ. But as we pursue that, we think again today of the fledgling churches on the island of Crete where Titus labored for Christ and faced this very same battle. We review a bit here today as we bring the book to a close, but remember chapter 1 and verse 1. We've gone through these ideas again and again. We want them to settle into our minds of the message of this book. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 1 that God is working in His people that they would have a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That they would receive His truth and that it would produce the godly life that, they, that he desires. The context of the battle that the Cretan churches were facing, that Titus was facing, we find in chapter 1 and verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then after the proverb, verse 15, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's the trouble in Crete. It was severe, a decadent world. And so, chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul calls Titus, as for you, in distinction from these false teachers, these who just doodle with words and ideas and do not produce godliness with their teaching. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the truth of God which will produce this godliness of life as God's people feed upon His Word and grow in it. Then chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, some examples of that, some application working itself out and how their lives are to be distinct from the world in which they live. And then the basis, the foundation of it all, chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here it is all in a nutshell, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ comes, Christ redeems, and he saves us that we would live with a zeal for good works. Again, that's not in heaven, that's now that he does this for us. And so, says Paul to Titus again, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1, literally, keep on reminding them then. And he lays out again in verses 1 and 2 who we are to be ready for every good work. Who we were, verse 3, but now... And here again is the foundation, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now, says Paul, the saying is trustworthy. And as we go through these verses more in more detail, verses 8 through 15, we'll find three virtues of a healthy local church. Three characteristics that we must labor for, work toward as an assembly, as we strive for health in Christ. So in verse 8, as Paul brings the letter to close, we find this emphasis on the kind of church environment that we must pursue in a decadent culture polluted by falsehood. Verses 8 through 15, these three virtues will draw them out as we work our way through. But may the Savior help each of us as we labor, as we seek to pursue these virtues in our life together as the body of Christ. It's a calling for each one of us to pursue this together in faith. The first is we find in verse 8 is to be careful, is careful devotion to good works. This is one of the virtues of a healthy church. The church's culture, it's, it, the, the people that are there, are marked by a careful devotion to good works. It's a, it's a lifestyle. He says the saying is trustworthy. In the Apostle Paul, that almost always looks backward to what he has just said. And we would identify that perhaps as verses 4 through 7. The trustworthy statement that he's just laid out there. And he says, I want you to insist on these things. That, I, that is, I want you to teach the church that the church understands and grows in godliness this way. So Titus must teach the churches to pursue a certain subculture as born-again followers of Christ. Now look at verse 8. What is the practical goal that Titus is to aim at? What's the practical outcome that he is to aim at? Verse 8, so that... Those who have believed in God being be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's the end of it. That's what he's there to do, that they would live a life oriented toward the service of Christ. Or defined here as good works. Now, why does God call us to that? To make our lives kind of miserable because he needs us and he asks us, asks us to do this hard thing of living 
by good works? Is that the reason? Notice verse 9, or at the end of verse 8, I'm sorry, right before verse 9. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A life of active service for Christ. All of the members of a local church laboring to serve his cause are living out their life in context in a way that is excellent and profitable. To be pouring out these good works is the good life, so to speak. It's excellent. It's profitable. It's the way our Creator wants us to live. So it's not, I I want you to do this to make you miserable. It's our Creator saying by way of His counsel, this is how you were made to live. This is what is good. A life of labor for Christ, then, is precisely what Satan does not want of us. We know that the risen Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, that He is in heaven, sovereign and reigning, that He is saving a people for His name, redeeming them, drawing them into local assemblies of believers. This is what He is doing. And as He saves them, He is redeeming them and transforming them to be committed with zeal to good works. Chapter 2 and verse 14. This is one of the intentions of his saving grace is to bring us together that we would have a zeal, a a fire in our gut, so to speak, to do what is good and right, to serve Christ. Satan is not happy with that agenda. And so works to tear that down, to draw us away from that, But as we serve Christ through good works, then we're living a life that's oriented away from the godlessness of our culture and toward the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of a life that's given to God. And that will work itself out, devoted to good works in our families as we serve them and love them sacrificially. It will work itself out as we reach out through evangelism and through touching our world, both corporately as a church and individually as we meet those at work and our neighbors and relatives who know not Christ the Savior. Good works will show itself as we gather in the discipline of worship as we are today, knowing that that serves the community to see the testimony of Christ and it serves the the church itself as we aid one another in our walk with Christ through the discipline of worship. Good works will certainly include giving of our time and money and gifts, pouring out our life for the cause of Christ. It will mean meeting needs that we see as we care for one another. It will certainly include, in our setting at least, care for a building. That will, there will be physical work to do to maintain this base of operation and even financial giving that makes it possible, as is a particular focus of ours right now. But you remember the story I told last week of the woman in Zambia who met us at the door to serve a group of people as she was part of a ministry there and had that apron that said, Saved to Serve. I think if we just all think of that, as my orientation life. You might want to wear a cap, a t-shirt, an apron, or just have it in your mind. But just to say that, I was saved to serve. 
That is the excellent life. That is the profitable life. That is what God saved us to do, to give our life away to his cause and good works. That's what we see in Jesus as he kneels and washes the disciples' feet. Serving, and he said, if I've served you in this way, you should serve one another. To live a life of service. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Do we go about with that, that sense, that environment, I'm saved to serve. I'm saved to give my life toward the cause of Christ in whatever way he calls me. This is very personal to me. At age 19, I devoted my life to Christ in a unique way, in a way I'd never had before in my life. I was holding on to things undoubtedly then as well. But I said, I want my life to be used in your service. And I had no idea what that meant or where that would lead. None. But in, in the mercy of God, I took that energy and not knowing what to do with it, and I went to a little rural church. And for reasons unknown, that pastor gave me opportunities right away. I don't think he probably should have uh, given me some of the opportunities he did. I don't think he knew me well enough, but he put me to work. And God allowed me to learn to serve and the joy of service. And I don't know what came first, the heart change, then the service, or the service and then the heart change. But I found that in serving God, there was a joy I'd never known before. And I fell in love with it. To just know that my life counts not just for what I get and do for myself, but that I'm actually serving the risen Christ in washing feet or preaching a sermon and everything in between. Now we have to fight for this. We have to fight for this. Satan wants us to put ourselves first. He wants us to hoard our time. He wants us to squander our talents, not use them for God. Satan wants us to ignore others, to assume someone else will do the job, to obsess over our homes and our families, to the utter neglect of the needs of others around us and the cause of Christ's work in and through his people in the church. This is what Satan wants of us. But blasting through this satanic opposition, healthy churches are a beehive of ministry activity. This is one of the ways that you can attest if a church is alive. People willingly pour out their life in service to Christ. They say, where can I be used? What can I do? Let me go. Put me to work. Now, of course, mere busyness is no virtue. But there is great worth in laboring with devotion to build up Christ's body and minister to a dying world. This is the life, verse 8, that is excellent and profitable. That's the word of God. George Whitfield was an evangelist of extraordinary influence both here and across Great Britain, his homeland in the 18th century. He was a man of unusual zeal for good works. 
who preached and traveled constantly and literally died in the cause of Christ. September 30, 1770, Whitfield sought refuge in a Massachusetts inn where he hoped to rest his weary bones, but as he was getting ready to lay down for the night, he heard voices outside. And he opened the window and looked down to the ground below, and there were some travelers who were there that said, we have come to hear you preach. Will you preach to us? I mean, you've got to go back. There's no internet. There's no television. There's no recordings. If you wanted to hear a preacher, you had to go to the preacher and hear him speak. And Whitfield just was, he was in utter exhaustion. And he feebly explained that he simply could not do so. He just didn't have the energy to preach to them at that point. But the travelers countered with earnest explanations of the great lengths to which they had gone to hear the word of God. And so George reluctantly agreed on a compromise. I'll put a little thin candle on this windowsill. I will light it, and when it burns out, my sermon is done, however long that lasts. And when the candle burned out, his sermon was done, and he was done. Whitfield bid his audience good night, laid in his bed, and woke up in glory, age 56. That's an excellent way to go out, in my opinion. And maybe he should have rested a little more, of course. But he did not do good works to earn his salvation. He didn't do good works to impress others. There was a zeal for good works that God had put in this man's heart. And he lived it out and died a long ways from home in the service of Jesus. He served Christ with active devotion because he knew himself to be a forgiven sinner. God's adopted son and a servant of the greatest enterprise in the universe. Our calling may not be that, to be an evangelist far from home that almost never stops and preaches day after day. That may not be your calling. That's certainly not any of our callings. But we're in the same work. It's the same enterprise. And God's people, where they're gathered together in health, is a place of careful, thoughtful, active devotion to good works. Now secondly, there's a a great change here in emphasis at verse 9, and we find here that the second virtue of a healthy church is avoidance of foolish, divisive controversies. Verse 9, so devote to good works. You do that, teach them to do that, that's the life they're to live, but in contrast, verse 9, you see that word, but contrasting with verse 8, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Good works are excellent and profitable. A life devoted to the service of Christ is that. But here's the opposite of that. These speculative, argumentative, controversial quarrelings over the ideas of teachers who peddle false doctrine and chase silly ideas. We looked at them in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. But these foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, uh, we, we won't deal with each of these in turn. 
these areas of dispute, but we can just simply say that healthy churches avoid getting caught up in debates and arguments over speculative interpretations of Scripture and foolish minutia that they draw from the world around. Healthy churches know we're not doing that. We're not going there. We're not going to allow that to mark our gatherings together. I, I don't know specific examples that would be the best for our church or churches that are out there that are struggling, but certainly one of the sources of this is eschatology. Eschatology, the study of end times, is a good study. Scripture speaks of it. We want to understand it and know it and not dismiss eschatology. But we have individuals in Christian churches who spend all kinds of time on the internet to identify the Antichrist. That's a waste of time. It's foolishness. Who set the date for Christ's return or the start of the tribulation, or the mark of the beast, and these types of things. I have discerned through my research that here is the answer to this thing in Scripture that no one else knows. No one else knows, and you don't know either. Just foolishness. These, and it creates dissensions as people say, you shouldn't be talking about that. You shouldn't be thinking like that. Another source is uh, biblical numerology. Now, there's, there's undoubtedly a mystery in biblical numerology, and there are things that are proper to consider there, but some people take this to ridiculous ends. And it's like the genealogies of the past that the, these people would have been dealing with here on Creed, as they just read into the Scripture all kinds of things. And that's what people do with biblical numerology, is they read into the Bible what no one else can see. You can't see it because it isn't there. But other ways is to take the Hebrew Bible and to set it up like a crossword puzzle of sorts and to find in setting it up in a grid, the, the Hebrew letters in various texts, you can then find words that give us keys to certain things going on in our political world. is all utter foolishness. It might be searching the internet and finding secret plans of God in current events. Other specula speculations about politics and the like. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Who's doing right? Who's doing wrong? All the, See, I, I find this. I see this there. Why must we avoid such diversions? From the focus on God's revealed word. What does the text say? Avoid these things for, at the end of verse 9, for they are unprofitable and worthless. They fail to encourage a life of good works. Such speculative debates are unprofitable and worthless in contrast to what is excellent and profitable, verse 8. And we should therefore be warned and the, the main source today seems to be TV preachers who have come up with ideas that no one's ever thought about before. And maybe the worst of the worst is the internet. And finding some person who's seen something and convinces people to follow these ideas and to run with them. People caught in the web of such teaching turn from the ministry of God's Word in the church and they turn from the reading of God's Word at home because it's becoming dull and boring. 
What they're excited about are these new ideas they're seeing. These new things that no one else has ever been able to see before. Remember this, Eden Baptist Church. This stuff is foolish controversy. It's unprofitable. It is worthless. And we must avoid it. Also, with the avoidance of these types of ideas is resistance through discipline, verse 10. This gets really serious. Titus 3, verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A person who stirs up division is primarily these false Preachers who are finding all these things no one's ever heard about before, this enlightened way that's not honorable to God's word, they're teaching these kinds of things. The proper response is to warn them. And the goal is to see them to repent. But if he refuses after two confrontations, the church must turn its back on him. That's severe. But it's necessary when someone is destroying the truth in the church. Paul says this with a little bit more force in Romans 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is the thing to watch for. The secretive discerner who enlightens everybody else and is really just deceiving the naive if eden baptist church will be a healthy church we will stand up to this we won't let it happen we will seek to address it and that's what paul is calling titus to do here it's it's vital it's an attack on the truth it's like a cancer in the body and there has to be a response and why is that verse 11 Such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. They're playing around with these ideas. They're inserting them in the church. They're going around Scripture. And as they're doing that, they are then being destructive. They're showing who they are. I'm able to see the truth that others miss. I land on all the right websites and know just what to believe and what to dismiss. I know because I'm an elite discerner of truth. No, says verse 11, says the Apostle Paul, you're a moral fool. Such activity is rooted in pride. It ignores God's word. It spurns godly counsel. And it's willing to selfishly disrupt the peace of the church. A healthy church perceives this and stands up to it. It says this is not right. This does not accord with Scripture. And we cannot endure it. The focus simply is to be on the book, to be on the Word of God that He has revealed to us in the written text of Scripture and to know I'll spend the rest of forever seeking to plumb the depths of this book. I don't need secret knowledge from outside that some guru has come up with. And we need to be cautious of those who are drawn into these things that are being deceived by such teaching and not permit it to endure in the, in the assembly. I don't think it is by any means, but this is, is maintenance conversation as we think about what a healthy church is. So thirdly, the essential virtues of a healthy church 
a life of devotion to good works, avoidance of foolish divisive controversies, and thirdly, zealous partnership in gospel enterprise. As we come to verses 12 through 15 and the book comes to an end, we shouldn't just dismiss these words as meaningless, uh, having nothing to do with us. I think they teach us from a very different angle of what the church is to be. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So there is, there's gospel repositioning here in verse 12. And gospel supply in verse 13. The reassignment, Paul informs Titus that he will soon be relieved on his post at Crete by either Artemis or Tychicus to be worked out later. And Titus is to join Paul at Nicopolis, about 300 miles north of Crete, on the west coast of Greece. For reasons we do not know, Paul wants Titus to join him, yet Paul is also concerned to keep the churches of Crete supplied with good spiritual leadership. Now we are certain, from what we learn elsewhere, 2 Timothy, that Titus does follow Paul's direction, but we know little more. Having alerted Titus, though, to his pending reassignment, Paul now addresses the arrival of these other two ministers of the gospel. Verse 13, Zenos, the lawyer, Apollos, the preacher, are going to visit you there at Crete, and they need to be sent on from you. So speed them on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. Get the picture. There's two men that are going to arrive in a ship on the island of Crete, they're going to be going elsewhere. They'll spend some time talking to you, encouraging you, and praying with you, but they're not there really to minister to you. They're there to move on somewhere else. And as they do that, they're going to supply nothing to you, but you need to supply everything they need to get to the next place. Paul directed any number of missionary teams, evangelists, traversing the Roman Empire And if the gospel was going to advance, there's only one way that was possible in that day, and that was for individual Christians to care for these traveling evangelists to get them to the next place, strategically defined. So to keep them on the high seas and to keep them traversing Roman roads, people needed to give and care and meet those needs. Such love and need meeting is not Titus' responsibility alone, however. I want you to see to this as they come. Catch this with 2.14. There's going to be a zeal for good works that says, absolutely, we will care for them. We will guide them on their way. But not just you, Titus, verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. And not to be unfruitful. I wish the word and wasn't there. I think a better translation in the Greek would would be but also. It's not just additionally, not really connected. But also, you are to care for them, but also, so are others in the church. My instruction is not just for you, Titus, but for all Cretan believers, that they would be committed, there it is again, to good works and to help cases of urgent need. So Paul longed to see people genuinely transformed by God's saving grace and then to joyfully participate in the spread of the gospel to the nations. 
Now notice here, those who do not possess this orientation, what is said of them? Verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. Like a fruit tree whose roots are leaching nutrients from the soil but producing no fruit. That's the Christian who just lives life, just maintains their own body and their own world, and doesn't look beyond themselves. Unfruitful. It's like a tree that's not producing any fruit. The culture of a healthy church, in contrast, is one in which believers faithfully and energetically and joyfully spring into action to help others involved in gospel enterprise. How encouraging it was, a couple of weeks ago I talked to the church about the need of the farmers in Cambodia and how we've got to get them out of the house that they're in. And they have now found land and they're, they're, they're starting to build, but they you don't have loans there to build a house. So there's a tremendous need that has arisen. It was so encouraging. I didn't even get out of the front of the auditorium before people were here saying, how can we help? And that, that's the zeal for good works, to say we want to spur them on their way and to help them in gospel endeavor. Just this week, we've sprung into action with Crystal Lake Baptist Church. It seems they found a new home and a need for support. And we rejoice to spring into action, to say, how can we be involved? And so many other projects that are going on. We've even talked about that here in recent weeks on Sunday nights. But springing into action for gospel enterprise is no resigned obligation It is the joy of the heart that's been redeemed by Christ. It's saying, in the time God gives me, maybe like Whitfield, it's only 56 years, but in the time that God gives me, I'm going to invest myself in what the risen Christ is doing to build his church. It may be washing feet. It may be something that simple. But in some way, my life is linked into the cause of the gospel. That's what Paul longs for with the churches on Crete. That's what Christ desires of us in local churches. This is excellent. It's profitable. And we see the gospel fraternity just coming out of the pores of verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. You being plural here, this is a fraternity of gospel laborers who have received God's unmerited salvation. They form now a partnership that seeks to advance the spread of the gospel to the nations. And all of this in response to a Savior who fills his chosen sons and daughters with a zeal for good works. This is the good work. This is the ultimate good work. This is why we live. I would pray by the grace of God that in our church, that in your heart right now, there is a growing and deep desire to be fruitful. To say that out of the roots of who I am, out of the roots of my being and my circumstances, that there would be produced fruit that others could receive and benefit from. Fruit trees don't produce fruit for their own help. It's for others. 
but the roots that have to feed that fruit are a grow in the rich soil of scriptural truth. This is why truth is so important. This is why handling God's word honorably is so important to the church. The rich soil of scriptural truth in Christian zeal for God's glory and love for God's people, this is what feeds that fruit. Fruit that grows that others are benefited, as was the case in the story of Whitfield. One day, I think, Whitfield probably described in a picture the roots that fed the fruit of service. And that's when he saw a convicted felon being led to the gallows to be executed for his heinous crimes. And Whitfield commented, There, but for the grace of God, go I. Nothing stokes the zeal of God's servants like a warm realization of God's saving grace in our lives. That we are alive by mercy. And that we are alive in Christ by His unmerited grace. By Jesus taking our place and dying for us that we might have eternal life. That realization is what feeds the roots that produce the fruit that blesses this world. I don't know if I talk to anyone here hearing my voice by whatever means, but there might be some objection that just says, a missionary who would travel the Atlantic for weeks in a small ship and die of exhaustion preaching religion to strangers is an idiot. I may not articulate those words, but that's what's going on in my heart. That guy's just dumb. Who would do that? Why would they do that? Or the objection may be in your mind. This Apostle Paul, he traveled even more than Whitfield. And he ended up beheaded for preaching religion to strangers. He was crazy too. Or maybe these men saw something you don't see. Maybe in coming to recognize this grace in Christ, this one who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, who rose from the dead to defeat death, maybe in this one there is indeed a transformation of soul that leads us to risk our lives for something far better. And I would invite you to consider that very, very carefully. Because there is a satanic deception in this world that would keep you from it. But there is a joy in Christ that comes to those that he saves that can never be taken away. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, yes, we live in a culture that is a very, very dark world. There is a deep-seated rebellion against Christ. But may he allow us to be an island of godliness and faithfulness in this decadent world, in these three areas, that we would pursue devotion to good works. We would be an environment that avoids foolish and divisive controversies and focuses on the truth of God's word, holds it high and honors it in devotion. And thirdly, that we would be involved in zealous partnership and gospel enterprise. These are some virtues 
of a healthy church. May we be pressing toward them for the glory of God and the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, you've instructed us again in your grace. You've given us this time together to consider who we should be and to gather together here today in this way. We long for the day we can gather as one again, but we're grateful for those that you have brought together to consider these ideas under the guidance of the Spirit today. I pray for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior. Father, I know that the things that I'm saying just don't seem maybe to make sense or to be very important. But I pray that you'd open that heart to the wonder of sins forgiven and the assurance that one is reconciled with God. And I pray for those of us who know you that we would be committed to labor hard and fruitfully and faithfully to accomplish the work of the gospel, to love one another, to be devoted to good deeds, devoted to your word, devoted to the cause of Christ. May we take to heart this exhortation and rejoice in the privilege that is ours to be part of this labor. Through Christ we pray. Amen.